This episode is powered by denmeditation.com with locations in Los Angeles that normalize meditation and make it available to all. The meditation is the primary focus. The bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Okay, so I'm sitting with Tom Knowles today. He's a preeminent master teacher, a Maharashi of Vedic meditation. He's personally taught over 10,000 students around the world. He's a thought leader and celebrated speaker on the relationship between quantum physics and human consciousness, the cognitive sciences, and the potential of the brain and the health of the body. Tom became an acclaimed teacher of yoga and meditation before the age of 20. Can you believe it? What did we do before the age of 20? He learned under Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who became Tom's personal mentor and his predominant spiritual and educational influence. He traveled with him throughout India and Europe. He's worked in the Himalayas, developing a foreign aid-funded Vedic university to preserve the Nepalese Vedic knowledge and culture. He's had a key role in major meditation for peace teaching project in the Philippines during the People Power Revolution. That actually culminated in 60,000 new meditators in Manila. He spent most of his time living in Australia, where he not only worked with a lot of corporations, but co-funded and co-managed a meditation-inspired private high school in Sydney. I could go on and on about his awards and qualifications and incredible things that he has done, but let's just chat with him because he's here and you can hear it for yourself. Hey, so we're here today and I'm so honored to be speaking with Tom Knowles. He's a preeminent master teacher, a Maharishi of Vedic meditation. He's personally taught over 10 thousand students around the world. He's a thought leader, a celebrated speaker on relationships between quantum physics and human consciousness, the cognitive sciences, and the potential of brain and health of the body. Tom became an acclaimed teacher of yoga and meditation before the age of 20, which is unbelievable. He learned under Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who became Tom's personal mentor and his predominant spiritual and educational influence. I could go on and on about his awards, qualification, incredible things that he has done, but I have him right here, so let's just talk to him so you can hear it for himself. I personally am so honored to have you here as TM for me was my foray into meditation, and you've always been like a father of Vedic meditation and someone that I've always looked up to and kind of followed from behind the scenes. So it's an honor for me to be able to talk to you. So thank you. A pleasure. Thank you for, so much for having me. Yeah, of course. And at the end, everyone remember, he will leave us with a personal practice. He's actually going to sing some Sanskrit, which is amazing. It's going to be about a minute. You can close your eyes, meditate on it, and see what effect the sounds have for you. So don't forget. Um, So you've worked with so many people around the world, different statuses of people, different types of countries. Is there a theme that you keep running into, something that you feel like it doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, what you're going through, this is what we're all either grappling with or trying to attain? Yes. Uh, one word. <laughs> one word, relationships. Really? I, uh, I was a guest speaker at um, the World Economic Forum a few years ago, and I gave a keynote address. And a- after the um, speeches, um, part of the arrangement was that people could have a private session with me for an hour they had to book it and there were prime ministers there were finance ministers there were you know movers and shakers in the finance and economic world and the moment they got with me in private uh they would say look um do you talk about relationships 
Uh, it's just so fascinating to me that it seems to be the one area that everybody is just like befuddled about personal relationships. And, e and even let's say, I know you've worked in the Philippines and the Himalayas, like even in places like that, do you feel like that's a theme that still comes well, up? Uh, in the Himalayas, I work with masters and they don't, uh, ha right. they don't really <laughs> have relationships. Uh, most of them are celibates, but, um, Certainly, anywhere where people are in the relationship world, uh, you know, personal relationship seems to be the thing that almost everybody's fascinated by and the most confused by more than any other thing. And so that's just a fascinating thing to me. And why do you think the confusion is there? What do you think it is that no matter who you are, what Part of your practice here, and if you're even practicing at all, it's still something that befuddles us. I think it's uh, because we um, seek identity through others, and you know when we are outward looking for our personal definition to understand what we are, who we are, uh, to understand what it is, what our personal role in the evolution of things is. Um, one of the greatest temptations is to try to put that on somebody else. In other words, it will be when this magical divine person comes into my life. And of course, humans are humans. They're not magical and they're not divine. And so we get into a relationship with somebody and we have built prior to relating all kinds of inaccurate expectations. And inaccurate expectations in my book are the source of all suffering. You know, if you have accurate expectations, you're certainly going to suffer less. And if you have inaccurate expectations, then you're setting yourself up. My master used to say, in order to have a disappointment, you have to make an appointment. In other words, <laughs> you have to set yourself up for it. And so then when it turns out that, you know, the our desire to meet the divine didn't work out with a person um then you know everybody wants to know what to do and you know of course our training and western mentality is if a thing's not working see if you can control it see if you can control it and human beings attempting to control each other either overtly or sneakily just never works and so um, as a, as a uh, culture, we have uh, failed gravely in this area because w we've lost the basic idea of what uh, spending time with somebody really is in aid of. If somehow we think it's going to be, you know, the great holy grail for us and, you know, somehow we're going to get a kind of enlightenment if we find this perfect person, we're always going to be setting ourselves up for disappointment. So we need to find our, our true inner divine nature in our own simplest form of awareness, in that least excited state of consciousness. There it is. The fulfillment field is not had by, is not held by somebody else who's out there. It's right here inside you. You find fulfillment inside you and then when you come out from that meditation state, uh, you're taking your fulfillment on an excursion. You're able to take that fulfillment 
from where it is, which is inside you, to where it is not, which is outside you. So in short, when we turn ourselves into a big bag of neediness, and we have the idea that, you know, the thing that's going to fulfill the needs is outside me, then we have, um, we have problems. Um, it needs to go the other way around. Uh, our, our search needs to be inner, and then awaken the fulfillment deep inside, and then come out and meet the needs of the world with that. Now, I love that you said that. You said, take your fulfillment on an excursion outside. I feel like that is a huge problem for a lot of people. You can do a lot of inner work, even people who are really doing the work. How do you take that self-awareness and this inner fulfillment and actually sometimes meet up against the real world, which can sometimes be a little rough, whether it be a partnership like you were talking about, a relationship, or just something you're going through, how do you keep that when you're not actually in a meditative state? I think that uh, the whole idea of meditation is to find what you find in there and export it into the world outside of your meditation. If that's not what's happening, then, or if that's not a goal of the practice, then all meditation turns into is an escape. And if meditation is just an escape, I don't recommend people do it. Um, I recommend that we engage. So in the ancient uh, text from India, the Bhagavad Gita, which is a conversation between a great master, Krishna, and his student, Arjuna, Krishna says to Arjuna, who is looking for all the answers, um, you have to step beyond all of this relativity and experience being inside of you. And then he goes on to say, once you've established being, then from there you have to meet the need of the time, perform action. Performing action, uh, meaning, you know, we need to increase our adaptation energy, increase our creativity, increase our intelligence, increase our stamina through the gift of meditation, but it's in aid of going out and meeting demands interactively. You see, if we have a lot of inner capability that we've built through meditation, then when a demand is made on us, we can interact with the demand successfully. And a successful interaction with a demand brings happiness. But if we stay inside, you know, kind of weak, and we're not willing to deal with the world, uh, we don't have, either in our practice or as a goal of our practice, to meet the demands of the world. If we reject the world and say, that's all just a big mass of nothing, uh, I don't really want to experience that because it's nasty and it's not as nice as sitting with my eyes closed, then uh, we're missing the whole point. Uh, we end up, we'll end up having to deal with daily life anyway. I mean, I love that you said that because one of the things we deal with here at Den Meditation, you know, we get a lot of people who come in who are going through stuff, understandably, and they're meditating, but they sometimes, and I've said this before on here, look at meditation as this miracle cure, you know, and they're just think, like you were saying, if I escape into this world, which feels really good at this moment, I don't have to do anything else. Like it all takes care of itself. And we always try and stress like, no, you still have to do the work. Um, so it's actually, I feel like you just said it way more poignantly and in a perfect way. So thank you. But it does bring me to a question of 
action versus goals versus control. So, you know, I know you've said a few times, and I've loved this comment you make about how your Maharishi, you know, basically said, what are you doing in the world? Basically, you know, what are you doing in the world right now? I think was the statement. Um, And so, and then there's a conversation about letting go of control in the universe, in your everyday, because we all know ultimately we don't have control. How can you reconcile those two things of moving forward and action versus control? I think that the whole purpose of meditation is to transcend that localized and to experience your true deep inner self, which is this vast field of creative intelligence, through which, uh, from which all of your best ideas and thoughts will come. And so then having that as your inner identity, it is that field that is now using your body, your intellect, your mind, its localized instrument as an agent of progressive change. And so let the field operate through me and then I'll bring this individuality to bear in whatever way is the most efficient rather than my small self is going to get out there and, you know, make a name for itself. Um, And, you know, I'm going to get stuff done. I mean, we see far too much of that even in our leadership uh, pyramid right now. You know, it's not about the individuality. It's about the individual having, through direct experience of that inner state, having a spontaneous surrender to that vast cosmic intelligence. And we're not talking about, you know, belief in God. When I say cosmic intelligence, I mean that there is an intrinsic field, a unified field that is everywhere. And when we meditate and we de-excite, we identify with that place. We identify with that layer. And then as we keep practicing every day, what happens is that layer begins to channel through us our motivation, our energy, our creativity, our ideas, even our desires, our desires uh, for things that are harmful to ourselves or others begin to melt away. And our desires to spontaneously move in the direction of the sustainable, to move in the direction of uh, that which innovates, that which is creative, that which maintains the functioning of the laws of nature, this starts to take over. So you know, individuality has this idea that, you know, I have to control stuff. And, you know, if people are control freaks, well, they better not sleep at night because when they fall asleep, they're not controlling anymore. You know, the the idea that evolution can't happen unless I'm controlling it uh, is just nonsense. Evolution is a phenomenon and we need to ride with that river. What do you, I mean, what do you look at evolution? Like, what's your definition of evolution? Moving from less sophisticated conglomerations of matter to more sophisticated. When we look at what happened on Earth in the last uh, five billion years, um, you know, goop out of oceans turned into us. Um, You know, from being little bits of proteins that were floating around in mud uh, over a considerable period of time, in universe time, it was almost nothing. But over a certain period of time, uh, the the goop turned into human brains. And here we are looking out at the universe. Now, we are a part of the universe. This is the universe making itself conscious through us. 
So from less sophistication to greater sophistication, moving in the direction of elegance, elegant, an elegant assembly of self-referral. Why are we so fascinated by this universe we live in? It's because the universe is fascinated by it about itself and it needs a mechanism through which to experience. So when we talk about, oh, there may be life on other planets and so on, we have such a fascination with that. It's because we, we want to be certain that they're you know, underlying our desire to find out about exobiology. We want to be certain that there's a theme in what nature's intelligence is up to. It's trying to create nervous systems everywhere out of, out of particles. And so, um, you know, there's a, a, a problem that biologists don't like to talk about, but, you know, they're being forced to look at it now. If we agree that everything that it, all the species that exist today came from less evolved species, you go back and you say, well, eventually there were single-celled organisms. And then, okay, well, what was before that? How did those single-celled organisms get from being inanimate, non-reproducing proteins and suddenly make the jump to life. And now you say it's a living thing. This is the problem of biogenesis. You know, uh, if evolution is correct, and we know it is when we look at the science of it, how did matter turn into life? How did it happen? And, you know, biologists usually say that's not our area. <laughs> um, the fact is, this is what our universe is up to. And then if we all, going back to your individuality versus universe, we all have our own vessels, so mm -hmm. to speak. You're a vessel mm -hmm. of, you know, downloading information for lack of a better yeah. way of saying it or downloading. Mm -hmm. um, within that, how do you explain to people who might have a little bit more trouble with this concept, let's say different personalities mm -hmm. or how we both mm -hmm. do, we do individuate at some mm -hmm. point to bring it really base, some people have asked me before, I don't, I'm nervous to meditate because I don't want to lose my personality. Yeah, think of a tree uh, that has flowers and fruits and leaves and all of that. Now, we know that if the colorless sap that nourishes all those differences, if the colorless sap is drying up because the tree hasn't had water, then, you know, the fruits become, they all start moving in the same color. They all start going brown. The leaves start going brown the individuality, the colors and all that begin to fade off and the whole thing just turns into a big brown nothing. Now, you can get around and say, well, okay, I'm going to inject the fruits with little silicone and try to plump them up and I'm going to paint the leaves green and I'm going to, you know, put some salve on the bark and things. But all that activity is, you don't need to do that and it won't work anyway. You just do one thing, water the root of the tree. That's meditation. Now, when you water the root of the tree, the sap gets nourished. And though the sap itself is colorless, it's like the cosmic intelligence that permeates everything. Suddenly, the green gets greener and the fruits get more distinct. And all of the individuation becomes more individual. And so, if we nourish that underlying field, far from you know losing our individual distinction, we end up becoming a very... Uh, individuated, specialized means whereby that cosmic creative intelligence can channel itself. Do you, in your practice, um, 
do you speak to the universe? Do you feel like you have that? Is I know obviously Vedic, we haven't really talked about it. Hopefully people know when we can go back and really get into it. Mantra-based, you have a personal mantra. Um, how do you go beyond just, do you go beyond just that practice in your daily practice? Um, our idea about speaking to the universe in my tradition is that it's a waste of time. And I'll tell you why. There's a great <laughs> analogy in the Upanishads and it's a long story, but I'll get, I'll shorten it. So there's uh, a general, and there are a bunch of enlisted men in an army, and there's a sergeant who is the interface between the general and the enlisted men. And the general says to the sergeant, hey, Sarge, of course, you know, this was all in Sanskrit, so I'm kind of making it English, American <laughs> English. Hey, Sarge, take <laughs> the men up that hill, trim a few trees, build some fortification there, put the tents up there, because from that place we can see 360 degrees around the whole territory. Now go. The sergeant looks like he's in a kind of a reverie. And then he wakes from that and he says to the general, General, sir, I have a great idea. May I tell it to you? The general says, okay, but make it quick. And the sergeant says, I had the most astonishing idea my desire, I could take the men, march them up the hill, trim a few trees, build a fortification, put all the tents up there, because you see, sir, uh, from there we could see 360 degrees. May I please have your blessing to carry out my idea? <laughs> now, the Vedic joke here is what individuals <laughs> are doing. That cosmic creative intelligence is giving you your best ideas. Uh, you don't need to capture that idea and then feed it back to the universe again. The author of it was the universe. Your inner contact with the universe authored that desire. So instead of wasting time repackaging it and feeding it back to the universe and asking for it, you need to just get on with fulfilling the desire. How do you... How do you differentiate what is the actual, like the desires that, like you said, are coming down from the universe versus something that's your brain overworking? So, you know, let's, let's make it extreme. Uh, a heroin addict lying around on the street out here in Manhattan, um, you know, he gets a desire for another hit. Um, clearly, you know, if he follows the charm of that, he's just going to get worse. So we have to say that there is a uh, an essential prerequisite and that prerequisite is that every day and in our tradition it's twice every day once in the morning and once in the evening before the rest of the evening goes by you need to let go of your individuality transcend that and experience that unboundedness where you stop thinking then you come back to activity again and when you're doing that regularly you're creating a clear channel to that unbounded field, which is pushing the process of evolution. Um, and by in regular systematic contact with that inner quiet field that's deep inside you, then spontaneously your reckoning about what needs to be done is now becoming your own individualized, you're the narrow end of a funnel a funnel is very wide at one end and it's very narrow at the other end. The narrow end is the applied end and the wide end is the catchment end. 
So the inner part of you, which is the catchment, has to be open to that unified field of creative intelligence. And then that will feed into that. But if we're just like leading everyday life and, you know, waking, dreaming, sleeping, eating, you know, doing workaday stuff, trying to earn enough money to pay our rent and things. And then somebody says, you know, look, the cosmos is guiding you. There's no evidence of that <laughs> because, you know, their, their body is stressed, filled with stresses, and perhaps many of their desires are being driven by stress or fear or anger or sadness or just wanton mania. Um, so, you know, in order to qualify oneself to be the means through which that cosmic creative intelligence is operating, we have to learn how to step beyond thought. Otherwise, we're just left with our own individuality trying to think up stuff. You know, I think I should do this. I think I should do that. And, you know, I spoke to one person not too long ago. And, you know, I'm going to make this person sound as if they're dumb, but really, <laughs> this is a very common thing. You know, I, I said, so what are you doing in your life? And she said, well, like I'm, you know, into philanthropy. And I said, that's fantastic. You know, what's your area? And she goes, well, you know, um, uh, I can't stand the idea of kids suffering. And I said, well, that's very heartfelt. Um, is there some particular area where kids are suffering and, you know, you want to bring an end to that? And she was going like, well, you know, like wherever it's happening. And I just thought, well, okay. Um, that's big, you know, wherever it's happening, it's happening in every neighborhood, it's happening in every country, it's happening absolutely everywhere. Um, you know, for us just to kind of, you know, hook into something and say, I think I should be doing this. Um, what we need to do is broaden our inner context. We need to take our awareness to that place and then discover, from there we'll discover from that quiet place inside, we'll discover what is our, and here's a Sanskrit word, dharma, D-H-A-M-R-A. -A. Dharma means my personal role in the evolution of things. What is it that I'm going, where will I be able to serve best? Not based on sitting around and doing logical thinking only, but, you know, allowing that deep inner silent field that's inside you to inform you, to inform you and to guide you into that which is going to be your the most effective use of you. Because days and nights are passing, these bodies don't last forever. We need to be as effective as we can be. You know, to change the world must be a cooper cooperative enterprise. <music> Sorry to interrupt. I want to talk about our next Den Talks Live. We are so unbelievably lucky. We have Sean Korn. She was one of the first internationally celebrated yoga teachers. You know how we know everybody on IG now? She was literally one of the first that everyone started talking about. And she is just known for activism. She actually started off the mat and into the world. And since 2007, has taught so many leaders of activism to bridge the gap of injustice around the world. She's incredible. She sells out wherever she goes. So this interview is going to be great. It's January 24th. That's a Thursday night at 7 p.m. 
Don't forget what comes with that. I promise it'll be an in-depth conversation. Also a Q&A for you guys to have your own chance to talk to her and a personal practice. And don't forget, when she practices, she sells out. So this is a really unique opportunity. And per usual, we'll have some wine and cheese, snacks and drinks afterwards so we can all mingle and just like hang out. This is incredible. I can't express how lucky we are to have her. I hope to see you there. I want to go on the personal side a little bit off of this. How did you, by 20, you were a master teacher. How did you, you were raised, let, let's go back. So you were raised military, right? Air Force dad. I, I grew up, I grew up on uh, Air Force bases in war zones. I mean, that's a lot. And you were, yeah. and also didn't you have someone who was like a senator in your family too? Was there a lot of pressure? My father t- became a general and his father was a senator. So there was no pressure. These were intelligent guys, um, and when uh, when it was clear as to what my aptitude was going to be, and of course I had a lot to do with that clarity. Um, as it became clear what where my aptitude was going to lie, obviously I wasn't going to follow in my father's footsteps and become a combat fighter pilot, um, as kind of sexy as that sounds. Um, and, you know, but mentored by my grandfather and my father, and I do have to give them credit, um, they trained me that, you know, if you're going to do a thing, you do it and excel in it. Excel in it. And so when I met Maharishi Mahesh Yogi as a teenager uh, in the United States, he was traveling through the U.S., I had already read uh, Yogananda's book, uh, I had learned some of the techniques from Yogananda's organization, Kriya Yoga. Uh, I was ready for a personal guru, and then I met him. I met Maharishi. Now did you seek him out, or did you randomly meet him? It was, I was seeking in general something more, but uh, the moment I met him, I knew he was it. Now, you said you had a lot to do with the clarity, like your dad and grandfather knew you weren't going to go in the same path. What does that mean? Like as a kid, did you have a very strong sense of the spirituality? Like who were you as a child? I was an oddball. <laughs> uh, I was a real oddball. In what way? And um, well, uh, I was on the conveyor belt with my three siblings. I have an older sister and two younger brothers toward, you know, a fairly... Um, a kind of unremarkable American kid's grown-up life. Uh, When I, at the age of nine, I was hit by a car in an intersection on my bicycle. And I was so badly uh, wounded that I had to spend the next year in an orthopedic hospital, an army hospital. Oh, my God. Uh, My father, at that time, was stationed in Southeast Asia for the wars, and was in active combat. It was, you know, the time of JFK, around that time. And uh, my mother was forced to uh, either not see our father again for three years, tour of duty, and knowing he was in combat every day. Uh, or she could go there and take the family, but she couldn't take me because I was in the hospital in traction. Mm. So it was a kind of a Sophie's Choice moment. And I helped my mother decide to leave me behind. So I, uh, I spent a year in an army hospital. By the time I came out of there... Um, now, at nine years old, were you very clear that that was the right decision? 
Not really. Or were you trying to like, were you trying to please mom? Like what, what, like where did that come from? Cause that's a big yeah. thing as a nine-year-old to be like, it's okay. Leave me while I'm in traction at a hospital. I, I, um, I, I, I think that I had the well-being of my siblings in mind. They deserved to be able to see our father before he was killed in combat, which was, you know, the, the inherent risk. He was never killed, but uh, the risk was there every day. My mother deserved to be able to see him, you know, instead of being a Air Force wife 12,000 miles away from the war zone. And uh, the Air Force was providing, you know, accommodation for families fairly close to the combat. And I just thought, um, I can handle this. I don't think they're all going to handle not being there as well as I will be able to handle this. And uh, so I made the choice for her. And uh, and so then for a year, I was in a ward with nine other people. They were all soldiers who had come back from uh, Southeast Asia and oh my who God. were in an orthopedic hospital getting arms amputated and prosthetic limbs put on and missing eyes and bullet wounds and things. And, you know, um, these guys were all in their 20s. The oldest of them was probably 28. Um, and I was the only child in the entire hospital. And uh, so I was, um, I, I got a very quick education because I was constantly listening to them talk to each other. And um, I think by the time I graduated from a year in an army hospital, and then I was shipped off to Southeast Asia to rejoin my family. Um, I was already kind of a man and I was just turning 10. So I didn't relate very well at school. Uh, the US Defense Department didn't have very well organized schools. So my father said, uh, you'll read encyclopedias. And I read the World Book Encyclopedia and the Britannica Encyclopedia, and he tested me on them every week. You know, wow. there were certain certain weeks where I was very good with anything that started with M. Um, <laughs> and then other weeks where I was fantastic with anything that started with Q. Um, but having read encyclopedias backwards and forwards instead of going to school, I suddenly, uh, I, I had a, a, a maturity about me that wasn't reflected uh, back in school environments. I found I could do very well at things that I wanted to do well at, and I didn't bother with things I wasn't good at. And so I, my, my own education was a little bit piecemeal, but it was self-styled. And uh, by the time I was 17, my father was promoted to general and we moved to where he worked then in the Pentagon. Um, I, we were in Washington, D.C. I was really on my own path and I was big on, on reading. I came across uh, Yogananda's book, read that, and as soon as I read that, I thought, this is me. Th this, wow. is, this is what I need to know. I need to go to India. And so um, it was not long after that that I commenced my training with Maharishi. And uh, I was with him and studying under him and training with him for 26 years. That's, it sounds like you've had a lot of amazing fathers in your life. I mean, that's really... I think that that, that uh, was a distinct advantage for me. And my mother was very cool, too, you know, because she went along with all this stuff. But <laughs> um, 
that, that, that in the context of the world in which I grew up in, that was a very great advantage to me. My, my father was one of those rare birds of being a Democrat uh, in the Air Force, a high-ranking officer. Yeah. And my grandfather, the senator, was a Democrat. And so these were people who prided themselves on being open-minded and always encouraged us to, us meaning my siblings and I, I really took it to heart to, you know, if we wish to, to have a, a, a vigorous um, disagreement with them if we wanted to, but we had to really know how to present our stuff if we wanted to do that. Uh, and I, I learned, my, my father, for example, um, you know, by the time I was 14, he took me out of the school I was in at the time and put me in a university course to study communism. He wanted me to understand everything about what the Soviet Union's ideas were and so on. I was an expert in communism by the time I was, before I turned 15, I understood, I knew the history of it. I knew all the ideas, all the competing ideas and you know where it was being practiced currently and where variations of it were being practiced. So. You know, it was uh, it was an unusual upbringing. When my grandfather heard that I was going off with an Indian yogi to travel the world and end up in India, he wrote a check for me and he said, uh, "This will look after you. Don't freeload off anybody. Um, study, uh, learn everything you can learn, and if it's any good, come back and teach it to me." Oh my, oh my God, I actually just got tears in my eyes. Yeah, so, so I did that. It's, you know, my grandfather, was, my grandfather became one of my students. You did, so you actually taught him? Yes. Is he one of your yes. first students? Yes, one of my first. What surprised you mo most, or what changed with your relationship in that happening? Uh, I realized that to teach your own grandfather, it was too much of a role reversal. So I would say things to him like, uh, Grandpa, if you were one of my students, this is what I'd say to you today. If you were one of my students, we would now go through this particular lesson and so on. And I said, so I'd say to him, you know, let me show you what I have been trained to teach other people. And so we played, role played it that way so that it didn't put him in a position of having to accept me as a teacher, but de facto he was accepting me as a teacher because he practiced everything I taught him. And he practiced everything. He was practiced doing it all. Everything. In fact, uh, he passed away in his ninth decade. And uh, I wasn't present at the time. Uh, but um, the, the nurse in the hospital said, it's very odd, you know. He passed sometime in the wee hours of the morning when we came in because we heard the monitors making the sound of, you know, no heartbeat anymore. Uh, he wasn't lying down like most people were. He was sitting up at the head of the bed. And I said, I know what he was doing. He was meditating. Oh, my God. Passed. It's so beautiful. It's also, I have to, I'm really like, it's also because if people actually go back generations and understand what that mm. meant for your dad and for your grandfather to be that open, it says a lot. I mean, it's yeah. it's at a time, like you said, not only is it just from the military and from politics, which already in today's day and age can sometimes be very strict and narrow-minded at times. You know, they have one way of thinking. This is also, you're talking generations behind. Like, so it's, it's, mm. it's really pretty amazing how 
open they were and supportive. And like the fact that your grandfather was like, teach me everything I want to learn. What, how yeah. old was he when you started te- like working with him? He was in his 60s. So he was uh, about as old as I am now. And, you know, um, interestingly, I've analyzed this, you know, many times in the past, but one of the most important, uh, you know, windows of teaching, which we have uh, ancient texts write about today, was when Krishna was teaching meditation to Arjuna, where in the no man's land on a battlefield where a war was about to start. You know, so Arjuna was in his war chariot just about to commence a war and he began having doubts about what he was doing and he was in the no man's land between the two armies and krishna had volunteered to be his charioteer and the whole war was postponed while krishna taught arjuna to meditate on a battlefield that's the whole context of the bhagavad-gita so, you know, I may have had an unusual experience, but it wasn't that. I, I didn't meditate <laughs> in a battlefield, but some, somebody did once. And it's one of the most famous, uh, you know, meditation scenes in any of the ancient texts. Do you feel like, you know, we all are meditating to become more and more ourselves and, and connect and understand? And by ourselves, I mean connected to the universe, understand, like you said, our dharma and our purpose. Is there... And through meditation, I'm, it, it gets easier, right, and cleaner. Where do you think the average human sits as far as using their efficiencies? Or I, I'm trying to think of the right word for, um, you know, people say it all the time, we're only using X amount of our brain. We're only using this. Like, yeah. where do you think we are as far as in that realm, in the spiritual realm? Well, I think that uh, our spirituality is reflected in our uh, access to our neurological potential. Uh, it's not true to say that we're only using, that only a small part of our brain is active. Our entire brain is active, but what's it active doing? It's mostly active storing stress. Um, on average, people have access due to stress. On average, uh, people have access to about 2% of their brain's available computing power. Uh, the whole brain's active, but there's only about 2% room left. The other 98% is repeating the known. You know, in studies on cognitive processes of thinking, uh, it's not so surprising to discover that people have somewhere between 60,000 and 100,000 thought events in a day. Uh, That's a lot of thinking, but if you consider every little thought, every memory, every desire, and so on to be a thought, there's about 60,000 to 100,000 of those things happening a day. Um, once we get over our surprise about the sheer volume of that, the next thing we have to look at is content. Because the same, same studies show that uh, about 98% of the thoughts that you had today are the same thoughts that you had yesterday. And so there's about a 98% repetition of the known going on. and there's about a 2% originality factor. Now, that's shocking. That is, in fact, the biggest problem on Earth right now. That, you know, on average, people are able to draw upon 2% of their brain's computing power because the other 98% is just constant repetition of what they already know. Um, 
meditation addresses that directly because properly practiced, strategically practiced every day, the meditation technique should be cleaning out the stresses from the physiology and awakening the brain and, you know, getting some of that, you know, ever repeating known to decrease in percentage and having originality, creativity, innovation, new thinking, uh, fresh thinking, increase in percentage. And I think that though these are scientific statistics, they are reflective of our spirituality. Because how can we be spiritual if all we're doing is every day having the same thoughts on a loop? You know, um, our capacity to be spiritual means, spirit means essence. It's just gonna it means our, it, our essence. It means our, our least excited state, our simplest form of awareness. Your spirit is you minus all the thoughts. So whatever that state of being is, and you know, when people are having just minds that are just filled with the same junk day after day after day, um, the, their access to their spirit, to their essence, is minimized and meditation just changes that whole equation dramatically. Do you you said this is the biggest problem on earth now. Do you feel like there's been times when as a civilization we have been working at a higher capacity? There's no question about it. I'm in New York City right now and uh, when I walk through the streets you can see buildings that are just absolute genius. And they were designed to last 500 years, and they will. Some of them are only two or 100 years old now, but they'll be here in 500 years. Uh, you know, and beautiful, aesthetically pleasing designs that uh, just fascinate you. And you could walk around that building and look at it over and over again. And then you have the buildings that are designed to fall apart within 10 years. Uh, or whether they're designed to, or whether that's just what's going to happen because of poor design. Um, you know, basically, you know, the war against ugliness is being lost um, because the sustainable is always beautiful. When we look at the, uh, the pyramids at Giza, it's a fact that modern archaeologists and anthropologists, I know one woman who is an expert, she's a, an Egyptologist, they're stumped how those massive structures could be built. And there are about five different competing theories, all of which have holes in them, about how they were built. It used to be thought that, you know, it must have been millions or a million slaves that dragged these giant stones around, some of them the size of an entire house. But the slave theory has been got rid of now because there wasn't enough infrastructure for having slaves of that number or feeding them, there wasn't enough agriculture in the entire country to feed a million slaves. So um, how did those things get built? And in the time that frame that they got built, the, the only rational answer is that people were using a lot more of their brain back then. They had greater access to their brain's computing power than what we on average have today when we're building these crappy little, you know, things that we kind of live in and they can just blow over. Um, and the elegance, the sophistication, the orientation of the architecture to the natural world where the sun is rising, 
where you know where the sun will be at certain times of the year. Um, Stonehenge is another example of this, uh, about as old as the pyramids we think. We have no idea how people moved those massive rocks into position or how they had access without computers uh, because it's a great big it's a great big clock is what it is that you know the sun would shine through these particular gaps on certain days of the year and we're not even fully sure of all the different things that that which was a stone computer really what it was computing and what information those people were getting from it what happened to us i was just about to well, ask you we that got, <laughs> we we began to um get stressed we forgot the best techniques that our ancestors knew about how to access quiet time you know access of quiet time is probably what was responsible for the cognitive revolution that occurred about 130,000 years ago where the human brain went from being a little bit of a dumb brain to being a massively intelligent brain in just a few generations we know that humans are very comfortable sitting you know you'll read books about or you know story articles about how sitting is the worst thing you can do yes if that's all you do is sit around looking at a computer it's bad for you but we are undeniably extremely comfortable sitting posturally and that's an evolution the fact that our bodies evolved to allow us to be able to sit and then to close our eyes and to have these experiences that are not merely the waking state, not merely the sleep state, not merely the dream state, but something in between those states. It's likely that our ancient ancestors got their brains to get big by doing this systematically. But generationally, our cultures all over the world have forgotten how to teach it to the children. And what we're left with is waking, dreaming, and sleeping. And because of that, we don't have any practical strategic method for getting rid of the accumulated stress load that we pick up every day. Consequently, we wake up every day with more stress in our body than we had the previous day. And it's this constant accumulation of the, the imprint of overloads of experience that eats up our adaptation energy, which causes us to think repetitively. We're living in a culture that's basically in, uh, you know, traumatic stress syndrome. It's um, as a whole. It's traumatic. It's traumatic as a culture just to lead an everyday life. Information bombardment. You know, we all carry these little boxes around where, you know, everything we thought was true isn't true by the end of the day. <laughs> um, we, you know, we live our lives by this uh, kind of uh, auxiliary brain um, that, you know, we don't exercise our brains. And those little boxes, as useful as they may be, and I'm talking about smartphones, um, they don't provide us with deep, sustainable levels of rest that are extraordinary to release the stresses. For that, we have to have a daily meditation practice. Do you feel like... And, and this will be the renaissance of humanity, in my opinion. It's the renaissance of humanity. Well, that's what I was about to ask. So if you think it's a renaissance of humanity, do you think ultimately there's any ability for it to ever be static? Or do you think this is a destructive cycle that will just, as generations and generations go on, will keep happening? I think it's a cycle. 
uh, but we don't need to be caught in the downward end of the cycle. You know, since it's a cycle, let's get through the bottom of the circle where, you know, we're kind of in the gutter and come back up onto the, the rise and stay there for as long as we can. I think though it's a cycle, there is nothing uh, about the cycle that says how long you have to stay in any one part of it. You know, uh, a cycle is something that, you know, you can move upward in, in a cycle and you can stay on the upper end of the cycle. There will always be a loss of knowledge because just imagine if by some miracle everybody right now in the Western world started meditating, the world would go through a radical revolution. Um, probably there'd be no armies anymore. Probably there'd be, you know, uh, levels of creativity and for the first time in the world's history, because it's never happened before, peace, rather than just, you know, gaps between wars where we're preparing for the next war. That's not actually peace. Um, it would be so revolutionary that children would be born and grow into an enlightened state. That sounds wonderful, but think about this. If that is the baseline experience of a culture, it's very easy to begin forgetting about how you got there. The techniques that brought you to that elevated state start to get lost because everyone's just naturally living and born into a rather ideal society. So then what happens is it only takes one generation of people who don't lead an absolutely ideal life for every generation after that to go onto the slippery slope and get back to the bottom of the cycle again. It's funny. It's like how that actually works on every level of society. Yeah. Like obviously here we're talking about it universally yeah. in a huge way. But even like you think about all the time with like those self-made money families yes. where like parents worked so hard from yeah. nothing. And then it's like the next generation has a lot of that grit too, but it ha you know, likes life a little bit. And usually it's like two generations later, they screw up everything, all lose all the money. And nobody can remember how yeah. to do it, you know, um, because, you know, you're born into it. You, you don't know how it ever got there. And this seems to be, you know, it's a pattern of the loss and revival of knowledge. I do believe there's lots of evidence that we are in a revival right now. It's the revival of, of knowledge, the fascination that the world has with yoga, the fascination that the world has with meditation. It used to be only yoga. Now, as you well know, in the last eight years, the world's just crazy about meditation. Whether there's yoga or there's no yoga, it's just meditation. Yep. And, you know, uh, that beautiful, thank you, uh, introduction that you made to me itself was outdated when it was written in about uh, 2007 or 08, and I haven't had a chance to update it yet. I had only You're talking about the number of meditators yeah. you've taught? Because I was like, I it's funny, I should have checked because I'm like, I think this number is low. That's funny. Yeah, it's, it's, What's the it's number? four, time, it's four times that now. You know, 40,000. I've, I've instructed. And, and that's not, it's not like 40, as personally, like, you know, individually imparting that. Uh, the world has just gone wild for meditation. So to me, this is, it's, a, it's very promising. We need to keep that momentum going. Now, you've said something before, and I've heard it in other studies too, other, uh, other, uh, talks I've listened to of there's something also about the rate of like illumination today that when you start meditating, you will actually feel the effects 
faster than, let's say, 10 years ago if someone did it's it so or true. 40 years ago. As someone who's been teaching you know, f- for five decades, I can tell you that's absolutely true. Um, you know, I was an expert teacher uh, in the 70s. So my teaching methodology was as good then as it is now. Uh, <laughs> but the but but the collective consciousness has gone through such an upgrade that today people learn the same technique, taught in exactly the same way, and yet within days they're having experiences which back in the 1970s, it might have taken them six weeks or eight weeks of practice to have one of these signal events happen in meditation where they got, aha, you know, wow, Eureka, this is it. Now people are having that commonly within a day or two. Um, So there is a change happening. There's evolution happening in the human consciousness field. It's amazing. I want to do your four U's, which are four quick questions and takeaways for the audience. What's your favorite book? My favorite book uh, is the large uh, book out of which the Bhagavad Gita came. And it's called the Maha Bharata, B, Maha, M-A-H-A, B-H-A-R-A-T-A. And I particularly like a translation by a, a man who is brilliant with English, but translates from Sanskrit, Ramesh Menon. It's my favorite book because even though in total it's about 1,600 pages and two volumes, mind you. Um, you know, if, <laughs> uh, if, if people like epics like Lord of the Rings or something, they're going to absolutely adore this book. It's a page turner. You start reading it and you get hooked within the first five pages and you can't put it down. So the Mahabharata, because it's That's the amazing. history of the, the spiritual... Um, the, the spiritual renaissance through which India went 5,000 years ago during a time of war. India was uh, divided in two and there was a massive civil war happening. And in that context of that civil war, uh, a uh, meditation suddenly took grip and it completely changed the destiny of India. Maybe that'll happen here in the United States. Um, <laughs> Hopefully, we can do without we can do without the war. The civil war would be it'd be good for us yeah, to avoid exactly. that. Yeah, um, exactly. Inspirational teacher for you. My own guru, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, uh, a scientist, a philosopher, um, extremely kind and sweet, very disciplined all at once. Um, he uh, he was just. An amazing figure, and of course, I'm not the only one who thinks so. One of the most amazing things about him to me is this, that he came out of the Himalayas after his master passed at the age of, he, Maharishi, was at the age of 50. And he was an obscure, unknown person, except to a handful of his fellows who were with him in training under that teacher. Um, From the age of 50 to the age of near about 100, he built a worldwide movement of transcendental meditation that millions and millions and millions of people came to learn to meditate. Uh, for anybody out there who's thinking, oh, I'm already 30 or I'm already 40 or I'm already 50 and I haven't you know, done the thing yet, my teacher built a world movement starting from nothing at the age of 50. 
That's incredible. And, you know, changed the way the entire world thinks about meditation virtually single-handedly um, during the, you know, 50s and 60s. I mean, I always think of him arriving in Los Angeles in 1958. And, you know, this was the time of crew cuts and bobby socks and, you know, loafers. <laughs> and Los Angeles was a very conservative place. And here comes this Indian guru with long hair and a long beard wearing robes saying, I'm here to bring meditation to you. And, you know, people were listening to Elvis. Um, how that turned into what it ended up becoming, which was having millions of followers, it's a credit to his amazing capacity to make the knowledge relatable to people. Which is what being an incredible teacher is, because you can know everything, but to be able to translate it and affect people with that is a whole nother, it's just a whole different thing. Yeah, um, I, I think there's a big difference to use the language that I use, uh, the big difference between simply being or merely being a knower of reality to being an, someone who can expound it. So I would call that an exponent, someone who's an exponent of, <laughs> of that truth. You know, you can, you're not just shouting from the rooftop saying it's a great view, you're able to hand down the ladder. It's amazing. And it's funny. I, I know people can't see you. I can. Your eyes literally brighten, not that they're not already bright already when you talk about them. It's, it's really, it's really mm -hmm. sweet. What's your favorite mm -hmm. movie? I, you know, I'm a little torn, but I have to say I love Carl Sagan's screenplay. Uh, he's the writer of that book, Cosmos, and he wrote a screenplay which was put into a movie after he passed entitled Contact. I love that movie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it stars Jodie Foster and she does a fabulous job acting, but, and uh, Matthew McConaughey is her co-star. Um, it's a movie that I think is deeply underrated. I don't think it did fabulously well at the box office, but for anybody who's interested in gaining a cosmic perspective, um, I recommend, you know, some, some old movies like that, and it must be, you know, 30 years old, uh, you get enthusiastic about it and then you play it back to somebody who you want them to see it and you think, uh-oh, this was a mistake, you know, <laughs> it turns out it was corny. <laughs> but but this, this movie actually stands the test of time very nicely. Uh, it holds up. The, concept, the concepts in it are amazing. I agree. I love that movie. What is a helpful, mm -hmm. I mean, you are the man to do it. What's a helpful tip for a valuable meditation, for someone to sit down and really have a great meditation? I think don't be afraid to start wherever you start. Some people's first contact with meditation is through an app. Some people's first contact with meditation is just something they try themselves. Uh, but as you progress through getting up to a level of regular practice, you do need, in my opinion, to have a personal instructor who really knows what they're talking about. Someone who can uh, take you from you know A to Z really fast. Uh, because we want to have a maximum number of years in our fully developed state. You know, we don't want our fully developed state to arrive, you know, as a preparation for death. <laughs> we, <laughs> we want to live in that fully, and the world needs you. And so uh, there's no question that having a personal mentor uh, is an important element of excelling in anything. So having, you know, at whatever level people are either curious about or dabbling a little in 
or starting to become serious about a regular daily practice of meditation, there does come a point where you need to um, be in contact with somebody who's a recognized world expert on the subject and really get it moving, a coach. Before we go, I want to also chat about, even though it's a huge topic, but at least let's get it started, just about happiness. I feel like it's the one driver that gets people to meditation in the first place. Like, why am I not happy? And I think off of the conversation we're having, you're you, with all the stressors in today's life and how difficult it is, like you said, we're we're using so much of our energy on stress. What do you think it is that we're, why do you think that is A, the main goal, and B, why do you think it's so difficult to attain? It's because people put their faith in things that are going to change as being somehow the thing that brings them permanent happiness. You know, everybody, when they were a little kid, there was some point at which they wanted a toy of some kind, and they were obsessed by it day and night. And finally, if the toy did come, it's astonishing the speed with which it just ends up leaning against the wall over there and forgotten because the mind moves on to the next thing. Now I want a bicycle. And, you know, the bicycle, if I can just get a bicycle, it's going to be the answer to everything. And then bicycle comes and the bicycle sitting over there leaning against the fence with cobwebs and rusting uh, after a short time. Next, it's, well, let's try relationships. I need to have an absolutely fabulous person in my life who is, you know, the answer to my prayers. And I'm sure they're out there. I have a soulmate. If I just find that person, then that person is going to be the magic thing that's just, and it's just like the bicycle. Um, you know, you get into a relationship, and if you were actually thinking that a relationship was going to make you happy, you see, relationship just turns into a showcase for whatever your consciousness state is. So if there are two people living abject suffering and misery, and they start relating, now there's going to be a showcase of that. You know, the relationship is a showcase of that suffering. Uh, relationships can't make you happy. Um, if you are happy and you get into a love alliance, this is a word I prefer, you get into a love alliance with somebody, it's an alliance. That means you have a shared mission. Um, a relationship to me is just like some old rusty ship. You know, you hop on this thing, it moves away from the shore, and man, you better like it because it's a long swim back in. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, and especially if you were banking on it to bring you happiness, sustainable happiness or sustained happiness, it can't do that. You have to bring happiness to the relationship. And then, so then, to answer your question, you know, placing our faith and there's a thing, an experience, a person, whatever, and it's out there. And when I acquire that, I'll have my sustained happiness. We end up getting disappointed. And this regular disappointment is so demoralizing to us. And there's a very good reason why we're not going to find fulfillment or happiness out there because it's not out there. It's in here. It's inside you. But you have to learn how to step beyond thought to experience that bliss. Once you acquire it inside here, you then export it to the world. So rather than being an importer of happiness by getting stuff and putting it into your awareness, uh, you need to become an exporter of happiness by discovering it 
at the source of thought deep inside you, and then you live your life and you're just radiating that happiness everywhere you go. And every single one of us is born with that essence of happiness. That's right. Correct? That's our source. That's the place where all of our thoughts are coming from. You know, the source of thought, the, the fountainhead from which all the thoughts are bubbling up itself is an, a, a vast, unlimited field of pure creative intelligence and happiness. It's deep inside everyone. Do you have one piece of life advice for everybody? I mean, I, you've already given so much in this, but is there, if you could like say, this is the one thing, if I only had one sentence to tell everybody, this is what I would tell them. Uh, stop waiting. Transcend where you are. You know, step beyond what you're experiencing. Go where you are not. Um, you know, uh, that ever-repeating known is the dangerous place. The unknown is actually the safe place. Embrace the unknown enthusiastically. Um, learn to interact with that which you've not yet experienced, rather than falling back on what's known and make it repeat and repeat and repeat in order to try to get happiness. Uh, that's anti-evolutionary. We have to we have to learn to go to the safe place, which is the unknown, and we have to learn of the danger of the ever-repeating known, because ever-repeating known is not safe, it's dangerous. I love that you say the safe place is the unknown, mm -hmm. because so many people struggle with that. And I've always said too, even the known over and over again is still the unknown. Mm -hmm. So every day you're living in an unknown, mm -hmm. so you might as well, like you said, go forward into the unknown and embrace it and watch how things start working for you versus being afraid of it. Mm -hmm while you're keeping yourself in a world of the unknown anyway. Yep. You're just not actually, your, your energies aren't aligning. Exactly. You know, we want, to, we want to have enthusiasm about new and fresh experience. We need to develop that enthusiasm and get on with it. You know, um, otherwise we're going to get stuck in a rut. You have been such a pleasure to talk to. I really, and before I totally wrap up, I want to remind everyone there will be a personal practice at the end of this, but I can't, Thank you enough. I mean, I could talk to you for three more hours. You're just a font of wisdom and have so much to offer. And I really appreciate you being so open with all of us and sharing. It's my joy. Thank you so much. Joy. And um, now he's going to lead us in his personal practice. So what I'd like everyone who's listening to do is to let the sounds of what I'm going to sing uh, affect them in a spontaneous and innocent way um, from your least excited state. Just sit in your least excited state. And what I'm going to be singing is um, something that's very personal to me about uh, the great wisdom and knowledge that came to me from my tradition. But the sounds are structured in such a way that as everything in traditional Sanskrit is designed to uh, create a life-supporting effect in the listener. So we just close our eyes, let the mind be easy, and let the sound have its way with us. Aingkara rinkara rahasya yukta Shrinkara gutartha mahavibhutyam 
Om Karamarma Pratipadini Pyam Namo Namaha Shri Guru Paduka Pyam Loka Gyana Payora Patanduram Shri Shankaram Sharmatam Brahmananda Sarasvatim Guru Varam Dhyayam Hijatir Mayam Jay Gurudev Take a few moments and then open the eyes slowly. Ten Talks is produced by Mike Burns, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, and music is by Alex Fetter. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.